0: Amen. Well, I'd invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to John chapter 3 for this message entitled, How He Loved Us. Our text for today is John 3, 16, the most famous verse in the Bible. And in this verse, we see the love of God on display through the gift of His Son to rescue sinners from death and grant us eternal life. You can follow along as I read. You can even recite it with me if you like. In fact, let's do that. Let's say it together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray as we begin. Our Father, with this text open before us, we once again submit our hearts and our minds to what the Spirit would teach us today. Open our minds to this familiar passage. Illumine our hearts. Show us Christ this day. Sanctify us by the truth. Your word is truth. Lord, we would ask that you would give sight to the the blind today that you would give hearing to deaf ears, that you would give give life to dead souls. We believe that only you, Holy Spirit, can save and sanctify. And so we pray that you would do it today for the glory of Christ. Amen. Well, have you read the news from around the world lately? Let me give you a sample of headlines just from one particular day this week. French farmers close in on Paris as government struggles to calm protests. Iran threatens to respond to to any U.S. strikes as Biden weighs how to react to base attack in Jordan. Israel raids West Bank Hospital as clashes erupt with Hamas in northern Gaza. U.S. advisory for Jamaica warns Americans to reconsider visits amid spate of murders. The feud between Ukraine's president and Army chief boils over. Myanmar, three days or three years on. Resistance gains Rays specter of splintered nation. And finally, North Korea continues testing a near-nuclear-capable cruise missile, or new nuclear-capable cruise missile. Conducts two tests within a week. If you were to take all of the world, national, local news articles and summarize them all with one headline, what would you title that article? I would propose this title, and I get these words from Genesis chapter 6, Verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. My friends, the world is at war. We are at war with one another individually and nation is at war with nation. People are at war with people. Why is it that the headlines change, the featured nations change in those headlines? But those headlines represent the status quo. The answer is because the world is at war with God. In fact, you could define the word wickedness in a variety of ways. One way to define it would be to be at war with God. All violence and hostility and suffering exists as the result of the world's rejection of God's authority and design for life. Alexander Solzhenitsyn described the atrocities of the uh, Russians in the 20th century with the words, men have forgotten God. That's why all of this has happened. But it's not as though men have forgotten God in some passive way, like they just forgot to start thinking about him or continue thinking about him. No, there's actually been a, a purposeful decision to reject God that goes all the way back to the beginning of time. In the beginning, Adam and Eve were at peace with one another. They were at peace with the world around them. They were at peace with God. They enjoyed harmony and productivity and happiness and freedom. And life was fairly simple when it was just the two of them. And there was only one rule. Stay away from that one tree in the middle of the garden. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They had the multitude of trees from which they could eat, which they were responsible to cultivate, but they were to stay away from that one tree. But then the serpent came to Eve, of course, and planted those seeds of doubt regarding the goodness of God, regarding the generosity of God, regarding the trustworthiness of God. And she began to look at that one tree and her mind became distorted and she found a new way to think and concluded that indeed God is not good. God is not generous and God isn't trustworthy. And so she took of the fruit and ate and gave some to her husband Adam, and he ate. And that act of rejecting God's authority over their lives launched the world into a state of chaos. That very moment, Adam and Eve perceived themselves, each other, to be a threat. So they sewed fig leaves together and covered themselves. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking through the garden and they perceived Him to be a threat. So they hid from Him. Well, corruption entered the world and like a cancer took over such that there was nothing in all of creation that was untouched by the curse brought about by Adam and Eve's rebellion against God. Genesis chapter 6, verses 11 and 12 describes this State of the earth several hundred years down the line, saying, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And all flesh there refers not just to people, but also to animals. Everything that had the breath of life had corrupted itself because of the curse of sin. And my friends, that has never changed. The flood didn't change that. The Lord said at the end of the flood, I will never flood the earth again, even though the thoughts of man's heart is only evil continually. And time and time again, we see in Scripture that mankind is at war with God. In fact, in Psalm chapter 2, even though it's prophetically looking forward to the time of the Messiah, it really speaks of the, the constant state of mankind when it says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let's burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The the human heart is is bent on wrenching itself away from the sovereign rule of God, which of course it cannot do. Paul describes the same condition this way in Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Because what could be known about God is plain to them for God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. He goes on, for although they knew God, they didn't honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And they claimed to be wise, but they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This suppression of truth, the refusal to acknowledge God and give thanks to Him for the very life that He gives, and then replacing God with idols leads to irrational and vacuous living. Paul goes on to describe that in Romans chapter 1, but he also describes it in Ephesians 4 this way, now this I say in testifying the Lord that you must no longer walk as Gentiles, just unbelievers, do in the futility of their mind. They are darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up Given themselves over to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And then he puts it this way in Titus 3.3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. The Bible doesn't portray humanity in a particularly good light, does it? I mean, so much so that there's something in us that cries out, now, come on, it's not that bad. (laughs) There are a lot of good people in the world, aren't there? Well, it's true that because every person is made in the image of God, and as a result, we have the capacity for love and kindness and sacrificial living for the benefit of others we're not just capable of those things. We, we see those things lived out, those qualities exhibited in the lives of people. There are all around us and throughout the world soldiers and medical professionals and first responders and good Samaritans who do heroic acts that benefit other people even to their own hurt. There are kind neighbors and loving families and happy children and lifelong marriages. There is indeed much good in the world. And we can be thankful that the curse of sin hasn't made us humans as evil as we can possibly be. But even in the good, evil exists alongside the good and right below the surface. Our world is filled with babies who are aborted, children who are abused, women who are objectified, men who hate and kill one another. Gangs destroy cities, corrupt politicians ruin Nations and terrorist groups wreak havoc on the world. Though there is much good in the world, evil is pervasive and growing. The nearly 80 years have passed since the last world war is not explained by pervasive and growing peace but rather we all know that everybody, every nation is on edge knowing that if World War III, when World War III happens, it will be catastrophic for the planet. What's to be done with this world? If we could capture in our minds and in our hearts the beyond comprehension evil, that exists if we could hear in our ears the sounds and the cries of the sufferers, if we could penetrate into the heart of the wicked and see the malice in their souls. And if we had the right and the power and the desire to respond to worldwide corruption, how would you respond? What would you do with this world that is so pervasively saturated by wickedness? I don't think there's any doubt in that answer. We would be like Jonah. We would agree with Jonah who agreed with God that condemnation and judgment must come to the world. No matter how sentimental we might be about this life, the overwhelming evidence makes the outcome clear. There must be judgment if if god the creator can be said to be good in any sense if he's just and righteous if he cares at all about what is good and right condemnation must come to the wicked world and all the corruption within it otherwise god would be saying wickedness doesn't matter evil and pain and sorrow and suffering are irrelevant the truth is all humanity save for the one who was born of a virgin is worthy of condemnation and deserving of punishment. From the very beginning, when he spoke to Adam and Eve, God made it very clear that the punishment for, death, or for the punishment for sin is death. It has been that, and it must be that. Like the laws of the mesian and the Persians, which can't change once it's been signed, the world must perish because it has turned away from the living God who made it and the justice and the righteousness of God must see that come to pass. So why hasn't he done it? It's not because he lacks the power. The plagues he brought to Egypt in delivering his people Israel showed that he has the power over creation to do whatever he wants to do. The Lord says of himself in Isaiah 45, verse 7, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does these things. And then in verse 12, he said, I made the heaven and created man on it. Or rather, I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. So God has the power to judge the whole world and bring his justice to pass. So why hasn't he done it? Well, it's not because he doesn't have the right. Psalm 24 one says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. He, he made the earth and all that is in it, and therefore he has the right to do whatever he wants, just like the potter has the right to do whatever he desires with his clay. The Apostle Paul makes this argument in Romans chapter 9 when he says, Has the potter no right over the clay to make some or to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and make His his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? God has the right to bring destruction on this world. The world and all of us who are in it deserve the wrath of God to come upon us And even though God has the power and the right to do it, He hasn't given us over to His wrath. Well, could it be that even though God has the power and God has the right, that maybe He just doesn't have the will to do it? That somehow He just can't stomach the idea of condemning the entire human race? No, that's not it. Revelation 20 tells us that one day he will exert his power and his right to bring judgment to all who are part from Christ. It tells us, in fact, what it will look like. The Apostle John saw this vision of that final day. He says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was set, found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. So God has the power, God has the will, or rather the right, and then God has the will to judge. Again, I ask, why hasn't he done it? The answer is because there's more to God in his character than justice and righteousness. Not only is there more to God than those two qualities, but when God wants to reveal what he is like, to his people, to all people in truth, he front loads that list of what he is like with the reasons that he hasn't yet brought justice. It's in Exodus 34, a familiar passage we studied last year. The Lord declares about himself, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Lord says to us, I am abounding in steadfast love. Someone might say, well, that's good and fine, but what's love got to do with it? Justice is justice. A judge might love his daughter who committed some some heinous crime, but his love can't stop him from bringing justice. Otherwise, he would not be a very good judge. That's right. That's exactly right. Love cannot thwart justice. If it did... God would not be God. If God's love undermined his justice, he would no longer be just. And if he's no longer just, then what he says about himself is no longer true. And if what he says about himself is no longer true, then he is untrustworthy. And then it wouldn't matter how much he said he was a loving God. He would be cruel because you couldn't trust him. John 3.16 is the explanation of how God's love and God's justice meet in perfect harmony to satisfy the wrath of God while providing an escape from condemnation. With the events that we had on Friday and Saturday, we're focusing this weekend on the heart of God for the world. And John 3.16 conveys to us the heart of God for the world shining in all of its splendor through the gift of His Son by which He offers eternal life and redemption. We're going to walk through this verse under four headings. First, the world God loves. The world God loves. Second, the Son God gave. Third, the life God offers. And then we'll close by considering the response God requires. The world God loves, the son God gave, the life God offers, and the response God requires. Let's begin with the world God loves. I know you're familiar with these words, but look at this passage again and see that first phrase in John 3.16. For God so loved the world. Our familiar, familiarity with this passage blinds us to the wonder of it. So I hope that going through what we've done up until now helps us to consider just a little bit of how shocking it is that God would love the world. I mean, when you and I make something that turns against us, we tend to be rather quick to get rid of it. Whether it's a cake that didn't turn out right. Whether it's A plant that fails to thrive that you uproot and throw away? Whether it's a a car that breaks down and you just get rid of it, get something new. When a pet becomes violent, we put it down. It's not uncommon in the world that when children turn against their parents, the parents will disown their children. When an enemy stands against our nation, well, they won't be standing very much longer. God looks upon a world that has corrupted itself, that is filled with violence, that would be glad to be rid of Him, and it's worthy of His just wrath, which is more than capable and willing of measuring out, and yet He extends His love. God's love, of course, is is not an emotional feeling. It's not a sentimental mood. It's not an infatuation or a blind romantic attachment. God doesn't look at the world with rose-colored glasses and He's not needy as though He loves the world just so that the world will somehow love Him back. No, God's love, get this, is God's unilateral, undying commitment to work for the good of His creation. God's undying, unilateral commitment to work for the good of His creation. God's love is unilateral. That means his, it's His own decision and it's not explained by anything else in creation. It's undying, which means that God loves God's love doesn't rise and fall and come and go and increase and decrease. It, it remains constant. It's undying. And God's love is a commitment. It's not a feeling or an emotion. It's a decision that He is freshly committed to every single day. And God's love works for the good of his creation. His love is aimed at benefiting those who are the object of his love. Speaking of the unilateral love of God, the Lord says to Israel in Deuteronomy 7, it was not because you were more in number than any of the people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. But the Lord has brought you out of the mighty hand, with a mighty hand, and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God unilaterally unilaterally chose to set his love on Israel. And as his love is for Israel, so it is for us. Speaking of God's undying love, Lamentations 3.22 says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Psalm 136 declares to us in every one of its 26 verses, The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. So God's love is undying. Speaking of God's committed love, verse 23 of Lamentations 3 Refers to the steadfast love and mercies of the Lord, saying, They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That's why I say that God is freshly committed to his love every day. Ezekiel sixteen is a powerful passage where the Lord rehearses to Israel the in vivid metaphor the, the extent of their idolatry. And the Lord promises judgment but then he says this Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth and I will establish with you an everlasting covenant That's a unilateral commitment that God makes to set his love on Israel So God's love is unilateral it's undying and it's a committed love Speaking of God's working for the good of his creation Jesus says in Matthew 5:45 for he the father makes his Son, the actual Son, rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And then in Luke 6:35, He says that the Father is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. So God's love manifests itself through the kind blessings of God that we see with the sun outside, with the rain when it comes, with all that God allows this world to to flourish so God's love is his unilateral undying commitment to work for the good of his creation not just those he intends to save but also to the unjust and to the evil and to the ungrateful what the world deserves from God is judgment but what the world receives from God is love that gives them life and breath and all things God's love, as we said, causes the rain to fall so that food can grow. Rainbows can be seen. Plants and trees can be green. And water can be collected to drink. God's love causes the sun to shine so that we feel its warmth. We can measure time. We can collect its energy. God's love causes our hearts to beat and our lungs to breathe so that we can live and move on this earth and experience His goodness. But what's amazing is that that undeserved love of God extends far beyond those blessings of daily life. Those expressions of love can't stop the tsunami of judgment that is coming toward us. There is yet a greater expression of the love of God that we're pointed to in this verse. And it's in that simple phrase when he says, for God so loved the world the word so, so there in the original is not a measurement of of it's not a, a word of measurement or degree as if to say god loves the world this much rather it's a word that means in this way god loved the world in this way well what way well look at the text it says god so loved the world that he gave his only son Consider the world God loved, this is now the son God gave. God loved us by giving us his son. The son of God shares in the divine life with the father. They are co-equal and co-eternal. They equally share in the divine essence of all that it means to be God. And they've existed together for all of eternity. It's beyond our comprehension, but the Bible teaches that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are persons who exist together as one God. There is one God in three persons. And that's not a contradiction because they are one in one sense, the divine essence, and three in another way, personhood. This is the doctrine of the Trinity, and the triune God subsists in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And just as insects could never comprehend what it means to be human, so we cannot comprehend what it means to be God. But God has condescended to reveal aspects of himself that we can understand. In the Bible, he has revealed certain dynamics of the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that that we can begin to wrap our minds around to some degree. And so, for example, the father and the son have a relationship with each other characterized by shared glory. In his prayer to the father in John 17, verse 5, Jesus says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Then in verse 22, we learn that their relationship was characterized by shared unity. I guess the word shared there is a unnecessary, but Jesus says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. They are unified. And then finally, for our purposes today, in verse 24, we learn that the relationship between the Father and the Son for all eternity has been characterized by love. It says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have Given me, maybe with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So the Father and the Son reveal to us that they have had a relationship characterized by shared glory, unity, and shared love. So, as the infinite God, the Father and the Son. Enjoy infinite glory, limitless unity, and boundless love. No matter what your relationship is or has been with your father on earth, whether it's been good or bad or non-existent, we can conceive of a father-son relationship that is characterized by mutual praise of each other for their accomplishments. We can imagine a relationship where there's unity and not conflict. And we can picture, even maybe emotionally connect with a father son relationship characterized by love. But understand that whatever you can imagine in your own mind, the relationship between the father and the son is infinitely greater. The love that the father has for the son and that the son has for the father is beyond our comprehension. So when we read here that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that should stop us in our tracks. What do you mean He gave His only Son? How does giving His Son solve the problem of the world? Well, we've already established that the world is hopelessly lost and corrupt, right? And as a result of the pervasive evil in the heart, every person is under the just condemnation of God who simply can't sweep away the guilt of sinful man and still be just. Agreed? The only way then for sinners to be saved from judgment and from God's justice is to be, uh, uh, rather for God's justice to be upheld is if someone else satisfies the justice of of God. The problem is there is no human capable of serving as a substitute because all are under sin. And make no mistake, a substitute must be human to satisfy the requirements of the law. There is that natural law, sometimes called lex talionis, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, The scales of justice must be balanced, and that's why an animal can't be sacrificed and satisfy the justice of God. Nor could God, as God, pay the penalty for man. Either option would upend the scales in either direction. So what's the solution to this dilemma? Well, the infinite wisdom of God came up with a plan And a solution in eternity past. The Father and the Son agreed together to send the Son into the world whereby He would become a man without losing any of His deity. And being born as a virgin, He wouldn't be stained by sin. And therefore, being truly man and truly God, He lived a life of perfect obedience to God. And though He didn't deserve it because sinful man is hostile to God, they hated Jesus, and they nailed Him to a cross. And as He hung on that cross, the Father took all of the sin of those who would believe and placed them on Christ, and He poured out His wrath, satisfying His justice to the last drop. As, as truly man, Jesus served as a lossful substitute for sinful man, and as truly God, He was Able to absorb the infinite wrath of God for many. Second Corinthians five twenty one says, "For the for our sake he made him to be no sin, who knew, or he made him to be sin to who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God." So the Holy Father looked upon the Holy Son, with whom he had shared eternal glory, unity, and love. And he treated him, his own son, as though he had lived the life of a vile criminal. Really the collective sin of a multitude of sinners. Though for all eternity they had known nothing between them but perfect joy and love, the father treated him, his own son, as if he hated him. This wasn't cruelty on the part of the Father. This was the plan that they had together agreed to before time began. And Jesus, for His part, was not a victim. He had said in John 10, verse 18, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So so He was not a victim. He was a willing participant in this plan of salvation. Well, Jesus died on that cross. And he was buried. And to show that he had accepted the sacrifice of his son, the Father rose Jesus from the dead on the third day, proving that he had been victorious over sin and death. The justice of God had been met, and sin had been paid for, and freedom and forgiveness, or rather, forgiveness and freedom from condemnation had been won. That's what it means that God gave his only son. He gave His Son who is of inestimable value to save sinners who deserved His wrath. Well, we've seen the world God loves, the Son God gave. Now look again at John 3.16 to consider the life He offers. For God so loved the world, it says, that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish, should not perish, but have eternal life. The purpose of God giving the Son is to rescue mankind from perishing and offer us eternal life. To perish here means to be destroyed. It means to have that ultimate sentence of death carried out on us. But death does not mean the ceasing of existence. It is living apart from the glorious, loving presence of God. Scripture says it is appointed unto man once to die, and then comes judgment. So to perish here means to live forever under God's punishment for sin. The book of Revelation tells us what the final end will be of even the devil himself. It says in chapter 20, verse 10, And the devil, who had deceived the nations, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever And ever. And then I read it earlier, but verse 15 summarizes what will happen to all who die apart from Christ. If anyone's name, it says, was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. To perish is to be thrown into the lake of fire, it's a place of darkness and torment. And sorrow over sin and seething anger at God. You often find the phrase weeping and gnashing of teeth in Scripture. That's sorrow over sin and anger at God. Lake of fire is not the devil's domain. It's God's domain. It's where God's judgment rules and reigns over every inhabitant of that place forever this punishment lasts forever not only because sin is an offense against an infinite God and therefore the punishment is infinite but also because everyone who is in hell and in the lake of fire continues to sin being haters of God forever and ever and so their punishment is justly compounded this is this is what it means to perish and everyone is destined to perish. But God, God offers an escape from his wrath. Escape from hell and the lake of fire. Escape from an, in, an eternity perpetually existing under the fierce wrath of God's holy justice. And that escape is here called in John three sixteen, eternal life. Whereas the lake of fire is eternal death, God gave His Son to offer eternal life. If everlasting death is living under the wrath of God, separated from His mercy and love and grace, then everlasting life is living under the mercy and grace and love of God and being separated from His wrath. Jesus defined eternal life this way in John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And knowing God there is not simply knowing about God. It's not knowing that he exists. Rather, it's having a relationship with him. A relationship where your life is shaped by the reality of who God is and what he's done and what he has revealed in his word. Now, eternal life involves far more than what we have time to go into detail today. But just consider these elements. To have, to have eternal life is to have new life. Ephesians 2.5 says that God made us alive together with Christ. We saw that last week in our need to be born again. To have eternal life is to not only have new life, it also is to have a new identity. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So eternal life is a new life. It's a new identity. It's also a new citizenship. Colossians 1.13, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Eternal life is a new life, a new identity, a new citizenship. It's also, it also gives us a new master. A new master. Romans six twenty two says, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get from obedience leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So instead of the cruel slave master of sin, we now live under the benevolent, kind, loving, dictatorship, mastery of God, whose yoke is easy and burden is light. Eternal life is a new life. It's a new identity. It's a new citizenship. It's a new master. It's, it also makes you part of a new family. Romans 8.16 says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We are children of God and brothers and sisters with one another, with all those who have eternal life. Eternal life is a new life, a new identity, a new citizenship, a new family. It also provides a new power. A new power. Ephesians 1.19, Paul prays that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might. to a new life and identity and master and family and power and citizenship, we can add a new purpose. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says, And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So in living for him, we are to live for his glory, for his praise, for his honor and the spread of his name and the gospel. I know there's far more we could add. I'll round out this list with this. Eternal life grants us a new future. A new future. 1 Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. This new future is a a certain hope that everlasting life is free from the curse of sin and suffering. And because we will be completely free from the presence of sin in the future, we will be able to dwell with God in love and joy and peace forever and ever and ever and ever. This this eternal life is not a life that we have to wait to receive. This is a life you can have today. The moment a person receives everlasting life, they immediately come under God's gracious and loving rule, and the entire accumulated debt of a life full of sin, past, present, and future is wiped away once and for all. Forgiveness of sin is not a future hope. It's a settled reality. Freedom from condemnation is not something that will happen. It has happened. Experiencing the the abundant grace of God is not something that we anticipate. It's something that we receive today. All that is new immediately goes into effect and all that is future is secure. That's eternal life. That's the life that God offers as a result of giving his son because of the love that he has for the world. The question begging to be asked at this point is how does one get this eternal life? How do you go from that position of or rather condition of death and destiny of the lake of fire to ever to the everlasting life that God offers? Well, John 3:16 answers that question as well. Look at it one last time. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son That whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. The response that God requires to the Son God gave in order to receive eternal life is to believe in Him, to believe in the Son. Yes, it's that simple. You don't need to do good works to earn your way to heaven. You don't need to sell your possessions. You don't need to give money to the church. You don't need to clean up your life or do anything to make yourself acceptable to God. In fact, to try to earn eternal life further offends God because He's already told you that you are guilty and there's nothing you can do to absolve yourself of that guilt. So there's nothing you can do in terms of earning or working for eternal life. There's only one thing God requires of you. That's to believe. Believe means to accept the truth about your sin and your need of forgiveness from God. It means to accept the truth about who Jesus is. That He is truly God and truly man. That He died a death that sinners deserve and rose from the dead. It means to embrace His sacrifice as the only means by which you can be justified, you can be forgiven before a holy God. Really to believe is to place yourself in the merciful hands of God and accept that what He says is true. And then to acknowledge that to Him. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. My friend, if you've never believed in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, I would call on you today to believe you can have eternal life today, even right now. In your heart, you can just confess to him that, that you're a sinner worthy of his justice, but that he has provided a way through Christ who gave his life and that rose from the grave. You can acknowledge to God that Jesus' resurrection secures your forgiveness because God accepted his sacrifice and you can plead with him to forgive you and give you eternal life. And you don't need to know all the right words. There is no right thing to say. There is simply a heart that cries out to God for forgiveness. So you can speak to God in your own heart, whatever is there, whatever your understanding is, and know that God who knows the heart will hear your prayer and he will respond and he will forgive. Isaiah 55, 7 says, let the Wicked man forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him turn to the Lord for he will forgive and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Well, I know that most of you here have already believed. To you, I would say, keep believing. Keep trusting in Christ as the only means by which you can be saved from God's wrath. Don't be swayed by the temptation to start relying on yourself. Don't believe the lies that you need to somehow make yourself acceptable to God and keep him happy with you. Keep trusting in Christ's finished work, knowing that there's no condemnation left for you. Oh, but don't stop there. Let the truth of God's love for the world stir your heart for those who are far from Christ. Do you know that there are millions upon millions upon millions of people in this world who have never heard the gospel? Do you know that there are people in Columbia and in Howard County who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? Of course, there are people all around the world, even more so who don't even have someone who knows their language, who can come and speak to them the gospel of Christ. So may this truth of the gift of God's Son who grants eternal life stir us to become ambassadors for Christ. Because we've been entrusted with this message of reconciliation to to plead with the world, be reconciled to God. So consider those around you that you know, maybe right now faces and names that come to your mind of people who don't know Christ and how you can be an ambassador for Christ and tell them that God offers eternal life to anyone who would believe in His Son. And maybe some of you, the Lord, would stir in your heart to say, this is a message that the nations need to hear. Lord, would you send me? Would you do to me what you did for the Reesmans or Teresa Guillory or Juan Moncayo? people who sat in your chairs and raised their hand and said, I will go. I will tell people about Christ. Maybe God would put that on your heart. And we would love to send you and go with you in that way. But whether you go across the water or whether you go across the street or across the hallway, may we all be ambassadors for Christ and proclaim this good news of John 3.16. Let's pray. As I'm praying, the men can come to prepare for Lord's Supper. Father, we thank you for this passage a passage that's so familiar to many of us. We constantly need this reminder of the simplicity of the gospel. It's not a, it's not a complicated truth. We experience the reality of sin in our own hearts. We, we, we see it around us in the world. We see it in the headlines. We hear it on the news. It's not hard to convince us of how desperately our world is worthy of condemnation. And Lord, we've often made so little of your love. We've often looked at people and even nations and, and said that they are too far gone. That they, they don't deserve to be saved. And even if someone were to proclaim the gospel, we're pretty convinced that they would never believe There is a sense in which we can be like Jonah. We ought to be. And that is in believing that even the most vile, wicked person that we can conceive of is the kind of person that you would save. After all, you saved us in our own wickedness and depravity. Lord, help us to be a people who exalt the Lord Jesus Christ and magnify his love, proclaiming this truth to others that they might have eternal life. And for any Lord who are here who don't know Christ, would you open their eyes to believe? Give them faith, that precious gift that they might believe in Jesus Christ and receive forgiveness and that we would celebrate together your work of salvation even on this day. And as we celebrate now the sacrifice of Christ through the Lord's Supper, would you again turn our hearts toward you? In Christ's name I pray. Amen.